Tick, tick. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. So, this title, Tick, Tick, are we still happy with it? Yeah, why wouldn't we be? A few people seem to be finding it confusing. I saw a tweet at the weekend from someone who said they were really enjoying the new TikTok podcast. Well, at least they're enjoying it, even if they're getting the name wrong. Sure, but then I saw another tweet from our staff colleague, Philip Matthews, and it was just after Trump had said he was going to war with the social media platform TikTok, partly because it's Chinese and partly because TikTok is keeping mean to him. And Philip wrote, subscribe to Stuff Selection podcast Tick Tick before Trump bans it by accident. Mate, if we get banned by executive order, our downloads are going to go through the roof. Bring it on, Donald. Anyway, Hardy Mai, welcome. This is Tick Tick, Stuff's 2020 election podcast for Tuesday the 11th of August. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Tēnā koutou Three times a week, usually on a Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday, we'll be bringing you the news, some of the more unusual things about this election, and then we'll slow things down to focus on one particular topic. There are 39 days until the election. So, the campaigning has begun. I've seen pictures of politicians with kids, balloons, the buses have been fitted out for political leaders to jump on board and drive around the country like political circus acts that arrive in town. Roll up, roll up, give us your votes. Yeah, Labour had its campaign launch in Auckland on Saturday. National has its one next weekend. And then there were the Greens and their unicorn. The what? There was a picture co-leader Marama Davidson sitting on a literal unicorn. I think it was made of plastic. Please tell me there's a logical explanation for this. Yeah, so just to wind it back a bit, New Zealand first released an ad picturing the Green Party co-leaders sitting next to a presumably Photoshop unicorn with cash raining down on them. So the Greens responded at their Christchurch campaign launch. They trolled New Zealand first by basically recreating the ad. Davidson on the unicorn. Chloe Swarbrick standing to one side, throwing cash into the air. Phew, I thought for a second it sounded like those days of the Greens doing Morris dancing. No such abomination this time. Hey, the other thing I noticed over the weekend is that the party billboards have reproduced exponentially. I noticed that at least some of the act ones have got this like giant QR code on them. I'm not sure what you're supposed to do, whether you're supposed to pull over and scan them or you just point your phone at them as you drive past. Maybe that for the government's COVID tracer app. I mean, they've got truckfuls of codes that aren't getting used in cafes and bars, so perhaps they're offering them to people to put on political billboards instead. Adam, that makes no sense. Yeah, but naughty unicorns are campaign launches, and that happened. Later in the show, Auckland University political scientist Dr Jennifer Curtin explains why sex still matters and how rare New Zealand's election race really is. But first, Eugene, what's been happening? Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has announced that a Cook Islands bubble could be on the cards by the end of the year. Good news, yay, you'd think. But National Leader Judith Collins is a bit cynical about the timing of the announcement, saying, hmm, why now? Is it connected to the election campaign by any chance? New Zealand First looks like it's in a battle for its electoral life, with a poll in the Northland seat showing that MP Shane Jones is trailing far behind. Now, Jones is having a crack at winning the seat, previously briefly held by his leader Winston Peters, which would mean that New Zealand First wouldn't have to cross the 5% threshold to get back into Parliament. The party's currently flailing below 5% in the polls, although, of course, Peters says of the polls, ignore them. Act leader David Seymour, some candidates, and a knitted elf called Freedom have headed off on a bus tour from Whangarei to Bluff with the intention of stopping in at 75 towns and cities. 
No, wait, sorry. The knitted elf called Freedom. Yeah, apparently it's the party mascot. What on earth is that racket? I've been playing with an idea. What's that? Well, this being an election and all, and the triennial chance for us, you know, the voters, to study what policies and promises the various parties are making and decide if we like the sound of them. Yeah, I, I know what an election is. So in our garage, we've got one of those spinning wheel things like you might have seen at quick fire raffles at old school school galas. Mm-hmm. We seem to be taking quite a tangent here. Yeah, bear with me. I was thinking, to get our way through policies in an interesting way, we could spin a wheel... See what policy area it lands on, and then say what policies are on offer from the various parties. Like a wheel of fortune. Yes, a wheel of policy. Sounds a bit boring, actually. Mm. We need to judge it up. Okay, smarty. How? Hmm. What about we splash whiskey over it, hat tip to coalition negotiations of past years, set it on fire, and then spin it? The flaming wheel of policy. Ah. Oh. I love it. Let's do it. There's only one problem, though. There don't actually seem to be many policies around at the moment. Yeah, there is that. Some parties have been quick off the mark. If you go to the green site and you click on the policy tab, you can see four broad policy areas. And then you click on each of them. There are really detailed statements about what they want. There's a 1% wealth tax, for instance. Act 2, if you click on their policy tabs... There's a list of topic areas, things like a five-point plan for economic recovery and welfare as a hand-up. And then you click on each of those and you find more details. But when you go to New Zealand first, click on the policy tab, and it takes you to the Coalition Agreement of 2017, a three-year-old document. The two big parties, National and Labour, when you go to National, there are five things. Business Start, Job Start, Business Investment Accelerator Scheme, a GST refund for small to medium businesses, and a Tourism Accelerator. But you don't see things like health, education, crime and justice, you know, those key policy areas that we always think of. Mind you, there is a thing saying, hey, we've got more policy coming, flick us your email address and we'll send them to you. Oh, very thoughtful. Yeah. Anyway, beneath Labour's policy tab too, it's a bit, I was going to say bare, but that's not quite right. There's a bunch of stuff, 17 things you can click on from economy to finance to environment. But much of it is, here's what we're doing already, and a whole lot of it revolves around COVID. Well, but this is the COVID election, that's what everyone's calling it, and it's it's true. We, we need policies around keeping the border closed or reopening it and getting the economy going again and being ready for community transmission, that sort of thing. True, except there's more to New Zealand's future than COVID, isn't there? Kids are still going to school, patients, non-COVID ones still need treating, well, and the COVID ones too. Climate change didn't go away just because we stopped commuting for a few weeks. Don't voters want to know what ideas parties have around those things? So why is the policy pantry empty? Our staff colleague, Thomas Coughlin, has been looking into it. Kia ora, Thomas. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Good, thank you. Hey, first of all, can you give us some context? At this stage of the election cycle, what would we normally expect to see in terms of policy? Quite a lot, actually. Like At this time last election, Labour had put out a fully-costed draft alternative budget. Uh, the Greens had fully-costed policies as well. National, obviously, as the government was basically campaigning on its actual budget, saying we've got these tax cuts which will come into force next uh, after the election. That was their big budgetary policy. You actually had a, a fairly clear idea of, you know, the the current government and what it would 
campaign on and an alternative government and, it, and what it was campaigning on and, and, and what would essentially become the policies of the next government. I guess the, the big thing that we need to, do need to take into account is, is COVID and that's everyone saying, hey, look, but COVID. Exactly. And and there is actually, I think on, on a lot of this, that's actually a fair excuse. Um, when you put together a budget, Treasury um, collates all of its forecasts for what the economy is going to look like over the next four years. And then it does some sort of quite intense uh, thinking, essentially, mm. and, and looks at what the economy will look like over the next 10 years. What that's meant to do is to give you and give the government an idea of how much money it's got to spend. Those forecasts are called um, BFU, the Budget, Economic and Fiscal Update. And that's essentially what the, what the government uses to put together its draft budget. Um, the opposition will take those forecasts and it will look at them and say, right, you know, here's, this is how much money's coming in. This is how much is going out. Well, we'll put together our draft budget based on that. And as the election draws closer, in normal times, um, you can kind of expect not much to change. By law, what you get before every election is another one of those EFUs, which is called the PREFU, the Pre-Election Economic and Fiscal Update. Now, in a normal election year, you wouldn't expect much to change between the BFU and the PREFU, but actually, because everything is changing so quickly, we're actually expecting the economic forecasts to change dramatically from BFU, where Treasury was saying, you know, essentially the economy is about to fall off a cliff, um, and the uh, preview, sorry, too many EFUs, and the preview, <laughs> uh, where, we're, what we're, where we're expecting it will say, well, look, you know, things are obviously pretty bad, but they're not quite as bad as we were expecting them to be. So National's defense for not putting together a full draft budget is, is essentially, well, frankly, we don't actually know how much money we've got to play around with here. So they're saying, just wait till preview comes out which is on August 20, wait till preview comes out and then we'll give you our draft budget then. Well, that sounds quite quite legit, really. So um, should we be g- getting concerned or do, should we all just be a bit more patient? Yeah. Well, on the other side of the equation, I, and look, I do think, I do think that's, that's kind of fair. I think what they need to be doing now, and to be fair to them, they are actually putting out um, draft policies on an indiv- individual basis. So we don't see how these policies are will add up to a sort of bigger picture policy platform. But there are sort of individual policies that, that have a costing attached to them. There's a bigger picture, isn't there? Of, you, you've written about this sort of growing problem of a lack of policy for a number of reasons. So basically, you know, how do we get to this stage and, and should we care about it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we should care about it because we want an election, ideally, in a sort of wider philosophical sense. Everyone wants the election to be about, um, you know, a contest of ideas. And I think over time, and, you know, this is incredibly cynical, but uh, the elections switch from being a contest of ideas into being a contest of idea. And that idea is who would be the best prime minister. Um, and I, obviously, I, th- I think there are structural issues at play here. And I think the structural issue is that in the contemporary political environment, if you create detailed policies, those detailed policies are going to be worked up by a few staffers in a, pol- a party's research unit. But those staffers are in, you know, single digits or low double digits, um, <laughs> there aren't many of them. And they're essentially working up policies that will then go to the civil service and be worked up by, you know, literally thousands of people. You can't expect staffers to come up with perfectly rounded policies to take to an election. What that means is that when policies are cooked up, if they are detailed and if they are sort of bold, 
they'll usually be ripped to shreds by the political system because obviously if you're opposed to that party, that's what you're going to do. That's how politics works. And I think that acts as a disincentive for parties to actually work up policy. I mean, you look at something like the Greens put out their um, wealth tax the other day, and um, immediately it was ripped to shreds with the opposition um, wrongfully alleging that it would lead to your dog being taxed. Um, and obviously, that would the the only way that it would that that tax would apply to your dog being taxed would be if you owned a dog that was worth more than fifty thousand dollars. I actually fact check this, and there are some dogs that are worth more than fifty thousand dollars. Obviously, <laughs> there aren't many. It's <laughs> Adam, Adam, is Max worth fifty thousand yeah. dollars? To me. <laughs> exactly. It's in the eye of the beholder, right? In the IRD. So, but but obviously, you know, as they say in politics, and sadly it is true that explaining is losing. And if you work out a detailed policy and then someone points a finger at you and says, that's a dog tax, then all of a sudden the, the political debate very swiftly degenerates into a question of, well, will this tax apply to your dog more than – Philosophically speaking, should we be moving the tax system towards taxing different sorts of of wealth uh, and income, which is more the point that I think the party was making? And I think the political system is very bad at it's very good at looking at you know finicky little details, and it's very bad at considering broader sweeps of things. Mm. All right. Well, we might press ahead with the flaming wheel of policy idea, uh, but we might have to wait for the pre <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks so you much, pr- Thomas. Probably have to change. I have to do it on the 18th of September. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Thanks, Thomas. All right. Election playlist time. Our occasional series where we feature songs from campaigns past or with a political twist. Never had much of nothing. Never had much to show. That is Planet Key by Darren Watson and video producer Jeremy Jones. It was released just before the 2014 election, and basically it spun pretty quickly into the legal universe and ended up bouncing around the courts. The Electoral Commission deemed it an election program, which is a kind of legal status about election promotions and require an authorised promoter statement. So that ruling effectively gagged it during the election itself. There was a sequel in 2015 when the High Court ruled in favour of Watson and Jones and said the satirical song should have been allowed to have been played during the campaign. The Commission actually took the case to the Court of Appeal, but the judges there said, yeah, nah, you really shouldn't have hit pause. Seriously, did they actually say, yeah, nah? Oh, maybe not quite like that. Right, on with the show. So there's one thing about selection which is sort of obvious, but still sort of interesting. And it's something that I haven't heard anyone make a particularly big deal of. And that's the fact that no matter which way the votes fall, New Zealand is pretty much guaranteed to start the next electoral term with a woman as Prime Minister and a woman as Leader of the Opposition. So I don't suppose many New Zealanders spend much time thinking about it, you know we've been there before. But observers from overseas see things a bit differently. Jacinda Ardern has received huge attention from international media, including a lot of discussion about New Zealand's response to COVID-19 and and whether it has made a difference, the fact that there's a woman leader during that time. Anyway, someone who's got a really detailed understanding of all this is Dr. Jennifer Curtin. She's a professor of politics at the University of Auckland and director of the university's Public Policy Institute. She's done a pile of research into gender in politics, and we decided to give her a bell. Hello, Jennifer. Kia ora, Adam. Kia ora, Eugene. Kia ora. So, 
I guess New Zealand has got pretty blasé about having female leaders, but when you look at history and when you look around the world, it's still a little bit unusual, right? Totally. You're correct. It is not unusual for New Zealand to be experiencing this because we know that we had Helen Clark and Jenny Shipley go up against each other in 1999. That was really the first, if you like, Shipley being the first woman Prime Minister, Helen Clark being the second. But then we had a really long period of time when we had no women leaders, actually, of our parties. So we didn't see that again until 2017, when Ardern suddenly became the leader. I mean, we've had a lot of co-leaders with our minor parties, and we've had deputy leaders that are women. So perhaps there's a reason for why New Zealanders are a little blasé, but we know that internationally, it's still very rare to see women leaders. So there were only 12 in 2020 that were at the head of government level, hmm. um, 22 if we also count heads of state, but even rarer to see two women facing off against each other for the top job. Just to start with what this might mean between now and September, do elections and campaigns look different when there are women at the top? Well, I think that's that's also true because even though we're used to seeing women in the top job in New Zealand, there's still a novelty. And the reason why there's still a novelty is is not just about numbers, but it's also about this really long historic association of masculinity being the thing that's tied to political leadership. And this has made it much more difficult for women to be perceived as legitimate actors in the political arena. So historically, the ideal political leader is one that has to be competent, strong, knowledgeable, honest, trustworthy, experienced, energetic, aggressive, not necessarily warm, humble or selfless, right? So what we saw, for example, with Ardern in 2017 was the media kind of went a bit manic for a while. You know, it's what was called Jacinda mania. And part of the reason was not just about her gender, it was about her age, but it was also that she brought to this historically masculine domain a different way of talking politics her narrative was different. Her emphasis on kindness and care was was really something we hadn't seen in New Zealand politics ever, or if we have, it's been momentary. This isn't necessarily a, a gender-specific thing in the sense that we know that Jeremy Corbyn has talked about kindness and Barack Obama had talked about kindness in politics, but she's become the first leader to continue the narrative I think, not just in the campaign in 2017, but throughout her term in office. And so so it has disrupted, I suppose, this masculine stereotype. And I'm really not sure that the media have quite gotten used to it yet because they still see it as a bit of a surprise. And actually, when Judith Collins took the leadership from Todd Muller, in a way, we see her doing politics as usual. So... Her representation as a political leader is very much in that old style if we compare it with Ardern's. Collins strongly identifies herself as feminist, but she's still doing what are these, do you say, masculinist things of projecting power and strength and that sort of thing. Is that right? That's right. And I think this makes sense 
for women leaders to do this. I mean, we've seen it in a way with Clark. Back in 2005, there were some students at a Labour rally that were holding up signs saying, no matter who wins, there's going to be a man in charge. And the idea here was that Don Brash and Helen Clark were equally as masculine, right? And so we'd end up with a guy. And I think it goes back to that point that there are norms associated with the way we expect politics and campaigns to get done, and these are still masculine norms. And so until those get disrupted more generally or until we see male leaders performing differently, then maybe we're not likely to see see any change for a while. Maybe our doom will become the anomaly rather than the rule. Can we just step back a bit? Because there have been queens and empresses all the way back through history, but, but women prime ministers and presidents have only appeared in the past century or so. So what difference does it make, or not, to have a woman at the top in terms of policies and, and politics? The research is um, still working out a way to measure this because you can only really measure a difference women make if we also compare them with men, right? So we need a larger number of women political leaders almost to be able to test and provide the evidence for how and under what conditions do women do leadership differently to men. What we do know is a couple of things about not so much the top job, because you're right, there's been very few um, over time, but what, what we do know is about the way women do politics differently once they enter the House, for example. So cross-national evidence tells us that irrespective of the party that they belong to, women are more likely than men to bring to the floor of the house issues that relate to women's lives. So care roles, domestic violence, all those sorts of issues that are traditionally thought of as women's issues have been raised in the parliament more often by women than by men. Even in the US, where the Republicans are often thought of as not particularly feminist at all. So we know that women's presence in the parliament matters. Of course, when suffragists were arguing for the right to vote and the right to stand in those early days, there was a belief that they would bring a more civilised presence to the House, and maybe that might have been the case. However, what we know in the New Zealand example is that women got the vote in 1893, the right to stand for election in 1919, and their first woman wasn't elected until 1933. So that gave the boys 80 years to get their traditions and the way politics got done in our parliament. They gave, gave them 80 years to get it all sorted out. And I mean, when we think about Margaret Thatcher, the same in the, the House of Commons in the in the UK is when if anybody's seen the Iron Lady movie, they'll know this now, right? Which is when she arrived in Parliament, she couldn't find the ladies' loo. Hmm. You know, the whole design of the Parliament buildings have been built in a time when women weren't present. Mm. On direct comparisons, there's been a lot of comment to suggest that countries with women leaders have had more effective responses to COVID. Is that even true? And if so, why would that be the case? So this is something that the international media have gone really crazy for in the last few months. I think what we can say is that 
some of the countries that have done really well in combating COVID and mitigating its effects are led by women, right? So we can think Taiwan, New Zealand, Germany. But again, as a comparative political scientist, for me, it goes back to the sample size. So we would really need to put all the countries in the loop, look at the ones that are doing well, and then work out whether or not there are also some countries that are doing well that have male leaders. And a couple of weeks ago, you could think Vietnam and Georgia were in the loop on countries doing well. That said, we know that there are other factors that matter. For example, unitary states have done better than federal states. Really obvious reason, like if you're not sharing borders with other countries, if you're an island state, if you've got a um, single house with centralised government, it's really easy to ensure that the policies that are made centrally are rolled out. But I think it's also about the persuasion of the government in charge. So women leaders tend to be, not generalisable, leading parties that are social or liberally progressive. They're more likely to perhaps do less austerity politics at present. And those countries that are doing well have good public health systems. Mm. But it's pretty rare to see women in charge of pandemics and women in charge of crises just by virtue of them being so few women leaders. So while we're on COVID, there's quite a bit of discussion about the shovel-ready projects that will help pull New Zealand out of the economic slump or the coming economic slump. There was a piece in the Sunday Star Times this weekend pointing out that construction is still a heavily male-dominated industry. So are women going to be given a fair crack at these new jobs that might come from these shovel-ready projects? So we also wrote about this the day after the budget. Some of us at the Public Policy Institute, we did a gender analysis of the budget and the economic recovery package. But I think there are several problems with the focus on the shovel ready. First, there's a nostalgic dimension to this, I believe. Going back to an era of the Ministry of Works reminds people of the good old days of full employment when men were strong and worked on the railways. And and actually, for women, that period of time wasn't necessarily particularly liberating. In many cases, the full employment rates didn't actually include women's unemployment levels because they weren't really that interested in counting whether or not women were in the labour market. So I agree that there's a real risk for the government right now focusing solely on construction agriculture, traditional manufacturing, because those are largely male-dominated occupations. Now, the solution, some have argued, is that women need to move from hospitality jobs, which are now being lost, in tourism particularly, into trades, enterprise, construction, all the jobs that are now being created. This is a good thing if that's what women want to do. But we're asking women to change their behaviours when we put these answers up. We're not asking businesses, for example, yet to change their rules around hiring these women. Government is not setting any new rules around gender and procurement in terms of tendering for contracts. Should, should these businesses that want these government jobs and contracts be asked to employ more women? And the final thing I would say about this is that what we forget is that actually there's research out there that shows that investing in social infrastructure 
in the care economy is just as likely to promote economic growth hmm. and recovery as is investment in physical infrastructure. And so there's a forgetting, I think, by government that the care economy is valuable to economic growth. And so we should be investing in health, education and care work, including the care work that women often do for no money whatsoever. So Parliament has just wound down till the election. Now, for years, for decades, there have been concerns about the culture in the New Zealand Parliament, as you said, it they had 80 years to make it a male place, and, and whether it's hostile to women. So obviously there are now a good number of women who have thrived and even reached the top in New Zealand politics, but do women still face problems with a hostile culture in Wellington? I think that the Francis report that came out last year revealed in considerable depth the real problems that are still associated with the culture of our parliament as a working place. So this doesn't just go to what happens in the House. It's about parliament as a workplace. And the Francis Report talked about systemic problems and that there are serial offenders who are predators. And these aren't just politicians. This is across the whole domain. And I think it extends into several of the parliamentary parties and the external party machines that they have I think organisationally, both the parties and the parliament have a lot to fix. But even if we follow all the recommendations of the Francis report and the international reports that we've seen come out of the UK and the Interparliamentary Union around the world, there are a lot of reports that are talking about this now. So they want codes of conduct and independent oversight and different ways of timetabling work and so on. In addition to all of that, it's really hard to get at the informal norms because what we know about male-dominant organisations like this is that over time, it's been enough for men to network with other men to be successful. So what we call this is homosociability. For women, yes, you need to network with other women, most often for support, so we see that in the Tracy Martin interview with Andrea Vance, her support came from Annette King when she was struggling with the culture. But for women, because the masculinity is so entrenched, it's not enough for women to network with other women to be successful. Women have to do heterosocial interactions, so they have to move into the male domains in order to be successful. And they're seen as outsiders to those homosocial male networks. And so they have to kind of demonstrate and behave in ways that are acceptable to those dominant networks. And I really have to say, I have no idea yet how to disrupt that homosocial capital that men hold and that women, but not only women, Māori, Pacifica, representatives from our range of multi-ethnic communities are all battling this because it's actually a Pākehā-centric homosociability, if you like. So I, I really don't want to end on a note of doom and gloom, but there is a lot more work that needs to be done. And I think changing the rules and accountability norms and so on and putting in codes of contact and independent oversight is really important 
But I fear that it's going to take another decade for that sort of change to trickle through to the cultural shifts that are also required. Just on that business with Thatcher not being able to find the ladies to lose because there weren't any, how does New Zealand Parliament and Beehive line up? I mean, I trust there are enough lose for women. In fact, with any luck, there should be more lose for women because of the, the whole theatre queuing thing that we know about. Absolutely. Look, New Zealand is further ahead than the UK in that sense. So we've had a crash for a really long time. Initially, when Ruth Richardson had her bubba and wanted to breastfeed, there wasn't a place for her to do that. But Catherine Rich was able to breastfeed her bubba in the house. So we are a little more developed in terms of that the place of parliament is more gender-friendly or women-friendly or parent-friendly. We have an LGBTQI room now um, in the house. Uh, The current speaker has um, changed a range of rules and built a playground. So it is becoming a more friendly face, if you like, of of the parliament. We have 41% women in the parliament, which suggests that women aren't yet fully turned off by the idea of becoming a politician, which is really great to see. And speaking of crashes, and we, we can't talk about babies and so on without acknowledging that the, the Prime Minister had a baby in office this term and another minister as well. And we've had Trevor Mallard holding a baby in the Speaker's chair. So does that suggest that we're doing better than most, that we're doing okay, or is there still a lot of glass to be shattered from that ceiling? So we know that um, Ardern was very forthright in reprimanding one television commentator who suggested that it was okay for bosses to ask the intentions of potential mothers whether or not they intended to have a baby while being employed. And and she said that was an inappropriate question and that got international news coverage. And similarly, when she was pregnant and when she had her baby, this was hailed as a, a really important moment for women in politics. I think you'll remember the fabulous photo of Ardern in the Korowai in Buckingham Palace with her partner and just that image of her being hapu and wearing a Korowai in the presence of the Queen, right, um, just signified the symbolic power of that was truly significant. So I think, yes, we've we've come a long way. The downside is, is that there is still... A small minority, I hope it's a small minority of people in New Zealand who have concerns about Ardern having a baby while she's Prime Minister, whether it's possible to do that job and be a mother, an adequate mother, in ways that they never really asked that of Tony Blair when he became a father while Prime Minister. Um, I'm not sure they asked it of Simon Bridges when he was leader of the opposition and talked a lot about his very young children, and they certainly didn't ask it of Boris Johnson just recently. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not sure we've reached the end goal of perfection yet, but certainly Ardern's been a fabulous role model in terms of what's possible for women who want to have a career and also be a mum. Well, one way or another, we're going to have uh, another woman Prime Minister, it would seem. Thank you, Jennifer Curtin, for filling in some of the gaps for us. Kia ora. That's the Tick Tick podcast for Tuesday, the 11th of August. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Jennifer Curtin, Thomas Coughlin, Jack Price, Catherine George, Patrick Poots, and John Hardefeld and Carol Hirschfeld. 
Phew. You can find us on all the podcast platforms. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email tick at stuff.co.nz. But not at tick at stuff.co.nz because there's no such email address. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We'll be back on Thursday, 5am. Ka kite anō.